Chapter 2 of the Countess of Rudelstadt. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Countess of Rudelstadt by George Sand, translated by Francis G. Shaw. Chapter 2 While the young and beautiful abbess, footnote, Frederick was accustomed to bestow abbeys, canonicates, and bishoprics upon his Protestant favorites, officers, and relatives. The Princess Amelia, having obstinately refused to be married, was endowed by him with the Abbey of Quinlinburg, a royal prebend, which brought in a hundred thousand francs income, and of which she bore the title, as do the Catholic canonesses. Was making these comments, the king entered the porphyrina's dressing room without knocking, at the moment when she began to recover her senses. Well, young lady, said he to her in a tone which was not very compassionate and even not very polite, how do you do? Are you subject to such accidents? In your profession, that would be a serious inconvenience. Was it some trouble you experienced? Are you so ill that you cannot answer? Do you reply, sir, said he, addressing the physician who was in attendance upon the cantatrice. Is she seriously indisposed? Yes, sire, replied the physician. Her pulse is barely perceptible. There is some great disorder in the circulation, and all the functions of life are, as it were, suspended. Her skin is icy. That is true, said the king, taking the cantatrice's hand in his. Her eye is fixed, her mouth colorless. Make her take some Hoffman's drops. What the devil? I thought it was some stage trick. I was wrong. This girl is very ill. She is neither wicked nor capricious. Is she porporino? Has anyone vexed her this evening? Nobody has reason to find fault with her, have they? Sire... She is not an actress, replied Porporino. She is an angel. Nothing more. Are you in love with her? No, sire. I respect her infinitely. I look upon her as my sister. Thanks to you too and to God, who no longer damns actors, my theater will become a school of virtue. There, now she comes to herself a little. Porporino, do you not know me? No, sir, replied the porporina, looking with a frightened air at the king, who was striking the palm of her hand. Perhaps it is an affection of the brain, said the king. Have you ever remarked that she was epileptic? Oh, sire, never. That would be horrible, replied the porporino, wounded by the brutal manner in which the king expressed himself, respecting so interesting a person. Ah, stop. Don't bleed her, said the king, pushing back the physician who was approaching with his lancet. I don't like to look coolly upon the flow of innocent blood, except in battle. You are not warriors. You are assassins. Let her be quiet. Give her air. Porporino, don't let her be bled. These gentlemen think they know everything. I confide her to your charge. Carry her home in your carriage, Polits. In a word, you shall answer for her. She is the greatest cantatrice we have ever had, 
and we shall not find another like her very easily. Apropos, what are you going to sing to me tomorrow, Monsieur Conciolini? The king descended the staircase of the theater with the tenor, speaking of something else, and went to sup with Voltaire, Le Maitre, Dajan, Algarotti, and the general Quintus Isilius. Frederick was harsh, violent, and intensely selfish. With all this, he was generous and good, even tender and affectionate sometimes. This is not a paradox. Everybody knows the character, at once terrible and fascinating, of this man of many faces, of complicated organization, full of contrasts, as are all powerful natures, especially when infested with supreme power, when an agitated life develops them in every sense. While supping, laughing and jesting, with bitterness and grace, with brutality and wit, in the midst of those dear friends whom he did not love, and of those Admiral Bowes' whom he did not admire, Frederick suddenly fell into a reverie, and rose, after some minutes of reflection, saying to his guests, Talk on, I hear you. Thereupon he passes into the next room, takes his hat and sword, signs to a page to follow him, and buries himself in the dark galleries and mysterious staircases of his old palace, while his guests, thinking him quite near, measure their words and dare to say nothing they would not wish him to hear. Moreover, they distrust each other so much, and with reason, that wherever they may be upon the soil of Prussia, they fear the redoubtable and malicious presence of Frederick still hovering over their heads. Lametri, the king's physician and reader, seldom consulted and hardly listened to, was the only one who knew no fear and inspired none in others. He was looked upon as entirely inoffensive, and he had found a means of preventing anyone from injuring him. It was to display so much impertinence, falling in stupidity before the king, that it was impossible to imagine more, and no enemy, no informer, could impute to him a fault which he had not openly and boldly ascribed to himself before the eyes of the king. He pretended to take literally the philosophic equality which the king affected in his intimate life with the five or six persons whom he honored by his familiarity. At this epoch, after about ten years of his reign, the king had not entirely divested himself of the popular affability of the prince royal, of the bold philosopher of Remersburg. Those who knew him had no faith in it. Voltaire, the most spoiled of all and the latest comer, began to be uneasy and to see the tyrant show himself under the good prince, the Dionysius under the Marcus Aurelius. Bellametri, either from unheard of frankness, deep calculation, or headstrong carelessness, treated the king with as little ceremony as the king had pretended to wish. He took off his cravat, his wig, even his shoes in the king's apartment, stretched himself out upon the sofas, held a familiar conversation with him, contradicted him openly, declaimed loudly upon the trifling importance to be attached to the honors of this world, to royalty as well as to religion, 
and to all the other prejudices which were bombarded by the reason of that day. In a word, he behaved like a true cynic and gave so many occasions for a disgrace or dismissal that it was a wonder to see him remain in favor, while so many others had been overthrown and broken for trifling faults. The reason was that an insidious word reported by spies, an appearance of hypocrisy, a slight doubt, make more impression upon gloomy and distrustful characters such as Frederick's than do a thousand imprudences. Frederick looked upon his Lemaitre as having lost his wits and often stood petrified with surprise before him, saying, That is an animal of a really scandalous impudence. Then he added aside, But he is sincere and has not two styles of speaking and thinking about me. He cannot abuse me in secret more than he does to my face, while all the others who are at my feet, what do they not say and what do they not think when I turn my back and they rise? Therefore, Lemaitre is the most honest man I have, and I must bear with him the more unbearable he is. The notion was therefore taken. Lemaitre could no longer displease the king, and he even succeeded in making him consider pleasant on his part what would have been revolting from any other. While Voltaire has entered from the beginning upon a system of adulations impossible to be maintained, and with which he himself was already tired and strangely disgusted, the cynic Lemaitre went on his way, amused himself, was as much at his ease with Frederick as with any other, and felt no necessity to curse and overthrow an idol to which he had never sacrificed nor promised anything. It resulted from this state of his mind that Frederick, who began to be weary of Voltaire himself, was always cordially amused with Lemaitre, and could not do without him, because, on his side, he was the only man who made no pretense of being amused with him. The Marquis d'Argent, a chamberlain with 6,000 francs salary, the first chamberlain, Voltaire, at 20,000, was that trifling philosopher, that ready and superficial writer, a true Frenchman of his day, good, hair-brained, libertine, sentimental, at once brave and effeminate, witty, generous and sarcastic, a man between two ages, romantic as a boy, skeptical as an old man. Having passed all his youth with actresses, by turns deceiver and deceived, always madly in love with the last, he had ended by marrying Mademoiselle Cochus, first actress of the French comic theater at Berlin, a very plain person, but very intelligent, in whose education he had taken much pleasure. Frederick was still ignorant of this mysterious union, and Darjan took care not to reveal it to those who might betray him. Still Voltaire was in the secret. Darjan loved the king sincerely, but was no more beloved by him than were the others. Frederick had no faith in the affections of anyone, and poor Darjan was sometimes the accomplice, sometimes the butt of his most cruel jests. It is known that the colonel, decorated by Frederick, with the pompous surname of Quintus Isilius, was a Frenchman by birth, named Guichard, 
an energetic soldier and skillful tactician, a great plunderer, moreover, as are all of his species, and a courtier in the full force of the term. We shall say nothing of Algarotti, that we may not weary the reader with a gallery of historical personages. It is enough for us to indicate the position of Frederick's guests during his alibi, and we have already said that far, from feeling relieved of the secret constraint which oppressed them, they were much less at their ease, and could not say a word without looking at that half-open door by which the king had gone out, and behind which he was perhaps engaged in watching them. Lemaitre was the only exception, and remarking that the service of the table was much neglected in the king's absence, Zounds, cried he, I consider the master of the house very impolite to let us want servants and champagne, and I will go see if he is within there, in order to complain to him. He rose, went into the king's chamber without fear of being indiscreet, and returned crying out, Nobody there? That's a good joke. It would be just like him to have gone off on horseback and ordered a maneuver by torchlight to promote his digestion. Queer fellow. You are a queer fellow, said Quintus Cecilius, who could not accustom himself to Lemaitre's strange manners. So the king has gone out, said Voltaire, beginning to breathe more freely. Yes, the king has gone out, said the Baron de Polnitz, entering. I have just met him in a back court, with only a page for escort. He had assumed his great incognito and put on his wall-colored coat. Therefore, I did not recognize him in the least. We must say a word about this third chamberlain, who has just come in. Otherwise, the reader will not understand how another than Lemaitre dared express himself so boldly respecting the master. Polnitz, whose age was as doubtful as his salary and functions, was that Prussian baron, that Rue of the Regency, who shone in his youth at the court of Madame Paladine mother of the Duke of Orleans, that unbridled gambler whose debts the King of Prussia would no longer pay, a great adventurer, a cynical libertine, very much of a spy, somewhat of a swindler, a brazen-faced courtier, fed, chained, despised, laughed at, and very badly paid by his master, who, nevertheless, could not do without him because an absolute monarch must always have under his hand some man ready to do the worst things, and who finds in them a pleasure, an indemnification for his humiliations, and the necessity of his existence. Polnitz was, moreover, at this time, the manager of His Majesty's theatres, a sort of supreme intendant of his revels. He was already called Old Polnitz, and was still called so thirty years later. He was an eternal courtier. He had been a page of the last king. He united to the refined vices of the regency, the sneering brutality of gross Guillaume's taproom, and the impertinent stiffness of Frederick the Great's witty and military brain. His favor with the latter being only a chronic state of disgrace, he cared little about the loss of it, and besides, as he always had the part of provocative agent, he did not really fear that anyone could injure him with the master who employed him. 
"'Sounds, my dear Baron,' cried Lemaitre. "'You ought to have followed the king's horse "'to tell us his adventures afterwards. "'We would have made him swear on his return "'by telling him how, without the leaving the table, "'we had seen all his actions.' "'Still better,' said Polnitz, laughing. "'We would not have told him till tomorrow, "'and would have attributed the divination to the sorcerer.' "'What sorcerer?' asked Voltaire. "'The famous Count de Saint-Germain, who arrived this morning.' "'Indeed? I am very curious to know if he be a cheat or a fool.' "'That is the difficulty,' said La Maitre. "'He hides his place so well that nobody can tell.' "'Well, that's not being much of a fool,' said Algarotti. "'Tell me of Frederick,' said La Maitre. "'I wish to excite his curiosity by some fine story.' in order that he may treat us some day at supper to St. Germain and his adventures before the deluge. That will amuse me. Come, where can our dear monarch be at this hour? Baron, you know. You were too curious not to have followed him, or too sly not to have guessed. Do you want me to tell you, said Polnitz? I hope, sir, said Quintus, becoming quite purple with indignation that you will not answer the strange questions of Monsieur Lemaitre, if his majesty... Oh, my dear, said Lemaitre, there is no majesty here. From ten in the evening till two in the morning, Frederick so decreed it once for all, and I know only the law. There is no king at supper. Do you not see that this poor king is wearied, and you will not help him, bad servant and bad friend as you are? to forget the burden of his greatness during the sweet watches of the night. Come, Polnitz, dear Baron, speak. Where is the king now? I do not wish to know, said Quintus, rising and leaving the table. As you will, said Polnitz, those who don't want to hear must stop their ears. I open mine, said Lemaitre. Faith and I too, said Algarotti, laughing. Gentlemen, said Polnitz, the king is with the Signora Porporina. Tell that to the, cried Lemaitre, and he added a word in Latin, which I cannot translate, because I do not understand Latin. Quintus Sicilius turned pale and went out. Algarotti recited an Italian sonnet, which I do not understand much better, and Voltaire improvised four lines to compare Frederick with Julius Caesar after which these three wise men looked smiling at each other, and Polnitz resumed with a serious air. I give you my word of honor that the king is with the poor Perina. Could you not give us something else, said Dajan, whom this matter deeply displeased, because he was not a man to betray others in order to augment his credit? Polnitz replied without being vexed. Thousand devils, Sir Marquis, when the king tells us that you are with Mademoiselle Cochus, that does not scandalize us. Why should you be scandalized because he is with Mademoiselle Porporina? It ought to edify you on the contrary, said Algarotti. And if it be true, I will tell it at Rome. And his holiness, who is somewhat of a scoffer, added Voltaire, will say many pretty things thereon. And what will his holiness scoff, asked the king, appearing suddenly upon the threshold of the supper room. 
At the loves of Frederick the Great with the porporina of Venice, replied Lemaitre saucily. The king turned pale and darted a terrible look at his guest, who all changed countenance, more or less, excepting Lemaitre. Well, what of it, said the latter quietly. Monsieur de Saint-Germain predicted this evening at the opera that at the hour when Saturn should pass between Regulus and the Virgin, his majesty, followed by a page. Really, what is this Count de Saint-Germain, said the king, seating himself with the greatest calmness and holding his glass to La Maitre that he might fill it with champagne. They talked to the Count de Saint-Germain, and the storm was thus averted without an explosion. At the first shock, the impertinence of Polnitz, who had betrayed him, and the audacity of Lemaitre, who had dared to tell him of it, had transported the king with anger. But, while Lemaitre was saying three words, Frederick recollected that he had desired Polnitz to babble upon certain matters and to make the others talk at the first opportunity. He therefore recovered himself with that readiness and freedom of mind which he possessed in the highest degree, and there was no more said of his nocturnal walk than if no one had noticed it. La Maitre indeed would have returned to the charge had he thought of it, but the frivolity of his mind followed the new route which Frederick opened to it, and it was thus that Frederick often mastered La Maitre himself. He treated him like a child who was about to break a glass or jump out of a window, and to whom we show a plaything in order to distract him and turn him from his fancy. Each made his observation upon the Count de Saint-Germain. Each related his anecdote. Polnitz pretended he had seen him in France twenty years before. And I have seen him again this morning, added he, no older than if I had left him yesterday. I recollect that one evening in France, hearing the passion of our Lord Jesus Christ spoken of, he cried out in the most pleasant manner and with the most incredible seriousness. I told him that things would go ill with him among those rascally Jews. I even predicted to him pretty nearly what did in fact take place. But he would not listen to me. His zeal made him despise all dangers. Thus his tragical end gave me a pain for which I shall never be consoled, and I cannot think of it without shedding tears. On saying this, that devil of a count wept in good earnest, and almost made us weep too. You were so good a Christian, said the king, that I should not be astonished had you done so. Polnitz had changed his religion three or four times from morning to evening in order to obtain benefices and places with which the king had tempted him for the sake of a joke. Your anecdote is nothing new, said Dergeon to the baron, and is only a piece of wit. I have heard much better. And what renders this Count de Saint-Germain an interesting, remarkable person in my eyes is the quantity of entirely novel and ingenious appreciations by which he explains events that have remained very obscure problems in history. Upon whatever subject or whatever epoch he is questioned, it is surprising, they say, to see that he knows or to hear him invent a crowd of probable and interesting circumstances, which throw a new light upon the most mysterious events. 
If he says things which are probable, observed Algarotti, he must be a prodigiously learned man, gifted with an extraordinary memory. More than that, said the king, learning is not sufficient to explain history. This man must have a powerful understanding and a profound knowledge of the human heart. The question is, if that beautiful organization has been falsified by the whim of wishing to play a strange part, in attributing to himself an eternal existence and the memory of events anterior to his human life, or if, in consequence of long studies and profound meditations, the brain has become deranged and stricken with monomania. I can at least, said Polnitz, guarantee to your majesty the good faith and the modesty of this man. He is not easily made to talk of the wonderful things of which he believes himself to have been a witness. He knows that he has been treated as a dreamer and a quack, and he appears much troubled by it, for he now refuses any explanation respecting his supernatural power. Well, sire, are you not dying with desire to see and hear him, said Lemaitre? I am on tenterhooks. How can you be curious on that point, returned the king? The spectacle of insanity is anything but pleasant. If it be insanity, agreed. But if it be not... Do you hear, gentlemen, resumed Frederick? This is the skeptic, the atheist par excellence, who takes to the marvelous and who already believes in the eternal existence of Monsieur de Saint-Germain. However... That must not astonish us when we know that Lemaitre is afraid of death, lightning, and ghosts. As to ghosts, I confess that to be a weakness, said Lemaitre. But as to lightning and all that can kill, I maintain that is reason and wisdom. Of what the devil should we be afraid, if not of that which attacks the safety of our existence? Long live Panurge, said Voltaire. I return to my Saint Germain, resumed Lemaitre. Messire Pentagrel ought to invite him to sup with us tomorrow. I will take good care not to do it, said the king. You are sufficiently crazy as it is, my poor friend, and it would be enough for him to put foot in my house, to set all the superstitious imaginations of which there are enough about us, dreaming on the instant a thousand ridiculous stories, which would soon be all over Europe. Oh, reason, my dear Voltaire, may its kingdom come. That is the prayer we ought to make every morning and every evening. Reason, reason, said La Maitre. I consider it very proper and agreeable when it serves me to excuse and legitimatize my passions, my vices, or my appetites. Give them which name you choose. But when it wearies me, I ask to be free to put it out of doors. What the devil? I don't want a reason which forces me to play the brave when I am afraid, the stoic when I am suffering, the resigned when I am boiling with anger. Plague on such a reason. It is not mine. It is a monster, a chimera, invented by those old daughters of antiquity whom you all admire. I don't know why. May its kingdom never come. I don't like absolute power of any kind. And if anyone should attempt to force me to disbelieve in God, 
which I now do freely and with my whole heart. I believe that, in the spirit of contradiction, I should go at once to the confessional. Oh, you are capable of anything, as we well know, even of believing in the Count de St. Germain's philosopher's stone. And why not? It would be so pleasant, and I have so much need of it. Oh, as to that, cried Polnitz, shaking his empty and silent pockets, and looking at the king with an expressive air, may its kingdom come as soon as possible. That is the prayer which every morning and every evening... Indeed, interrupted Frederick, who always turned a deaf ear to this kind of insinuation. Does this Monsieur de Saint-Germain pretend also that he has the secret of making gold? You did not tell me that. Well, then... Let me invite him to suffer tomorrow from you, said Lemaitre, for I am sure that a little of his secret would not be inconvenient to you either, sire Gargantua. You have great necessities in a gigantic stomach, as king and as reformer. Be silent, Panurge, replied Frederick. Your St. Germain is sentenced now. He is an impostor and an impudent fellow whom I will have strictly watched. For we know that with this fine secret more money is carried out of a country than left in it. Eh, gentlemen, have you forgotten that great necromancer Cagliostro, whom I drove out of Berlin in good earnest not more than six months ago? And who carried off a hundred crowns of mine, said Lemaitre. May the devil take them from him. And who would have carried them off from Polnitz, too, if he had had them, said Darjan. You drove him away, said Lemaitre to Frederick, but he played you a good trick, nevertheless. What? Ah, don't you know it? Well, I will treat you to a story. The first merit of a story is brevity, observed the king. Mine is only two words. The day on which your pantagruelic majesty ordered the sublime Cagliostro to pack up his alembics, his specters and his demons, it is a matter of public notoriety that at the stroke of noon he went out of all the gates of Berlin at the same moment, in person, in his carriage. Oh, that is attested by more than 20,000 witnesses. The keepers of all the gates saw him, with the same hat, the same wig, the same carriage, the same harness, the same luggage, and you will never persuade them that there were not on that day as many as five or six cogliastros on the move. All thought the story a good one. Frederick only did not laugh. He felt seriously interested in the progress of his dear reason, and superstition, which excited so much wit and gaiety in Voltaire, caused in him only indignation and disgust. Such are the people, cried he, shrugging his shoulders. Ah, Voltaire, such are the people. And this, in an age when you live and wave over the world, the bright light of your torch. You have been persecuted, banished, opposed in every manner, and Cagliostro has only to show himself to fascinate a whole populace. But little more is wanting for them to carry him in triumph. Do you know, said Lemaitre, that your greatest ladies believe in Cagliostro quite as much as the good market women? It was from one of the handsomest of your court that I heard this adventure. 
I'll bet it was Madame de Cleis, said the king. It is thou who hast named her, declaimed Lemaitre. There, he is thouing the king now, growled Quintus Cecilius, who had re-entered a few minutes before. That good de Cleis is mad, returned Frederick. She is the most intrepid visionary, the most greedy after horoscopes and sorceries. She requires a lesson. Let her take care. She turns the heads of all our ladies, and it is even said she made her husband crazy, for he sacrificed black he-goats to Satan in order to discover the treasures buried in our sands at Brandenburg. But all this is on a better footing with you, Father Pentagruel, said Lemaitre. I don't know why you wish women to submit to your grim goddess reason. Women come into the world to amuse themselves and us. Zounds, the day on which they are no longer crazy, we shall be very stupid. Madame de Kleist is charming, with all her stories of sorcerers. She regales Sora Amelia with them. What does he mean with this Sora Amelia? said the king, astonished. Eh, your noble and charming sister, the abbess of Quedlinburg who believes in magic with all her heart, as everybody knows. Hold your tongue, Panurge, exclaimed the king, in a voice of thunder, striking the table with his snuff-box. End of chapter 2